This news is funded by viewers and listeners like you. Please support our work at democracynow.org slash support. From New York, this is Democracy Now! There was a direct bombing to the hospital. Uh, They forced people inside the hospital, including patients, relatives. Oh, yeah, Allah. Patients, relatives, and uh, healthcare workers to evacuate immediately. Israeli troops stormed the largest hospital in southern Gaza after a days-long siege. We'll get a report from a doctor inside Nasser Hospital, and we'll go to Rafah, where fears are mounting Israel will launch a ground invasion. We'll also speak with the former head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth. Then, President Biden's urging the House to vote on the Senate's multi-billion-dollar foreign aid bill that includes $14 billion to Israel. Voting for $14 billion in military aid to help Israel commit war crimes in Gaza is a moral outrage. The senators who voted for it should be ashamed of themselves. What we need is a ceasefire, not more weapons to Israel. We'll speak with national security expert Bill Hartung about Washington's skewed priorities. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Kansas City, Missouri, at least one person died and 22 were wounded during a shooting at the parade celebrating Sunday's Super Bowl victory by the Kansas City Chiefs. A beloved local DJ and mother named Lisa Lopez Galvan was killed in the shooting. She hosted a show called Taste of Tejano on the local community radio station KKFI that also airs Democracy Now! every morning. The Kansas City Fire Department said eight of the shooting victims suffered, quote, immediately life-threatening injuries. Nine of the shooting victims were children. The Kansas City schools were closed so that kids could attend the parade. Police have detained three people in connection with the shooting. Police are still determining a motive, but have ruled out terrorism. This is Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves. I'm angry at what happened today. The people who came to this celebration should expect a safe environment. We had over 800 law enforcement officers, Kansas City and other agencies, at the location to keep everyone safe. Because of bad actors, which were very few, this tragedy occurred, even in the presence of uniformed law enforcement officers, who again ran towards them and took them into custody. Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas said he and his wife had to run for safety during the shooting. Parades, rallies, schools, movies, it seems like almost nothing is safe. And we had hundreds of law enforcement there working hard today. Missouri has some of the weakest gun control laws in the country, with no universal background checks, no assault weapon restrictions, no ban on large-capacity magazines, no waiting periods to purchase a gun, and no domestic violence gun laws. 
The shooting in Kansas City came on the sixth anniversary of the Parkland, Florida, school massacre, when a 19-year-old gunman shot dead 17 people and injured 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. To mark the anniversary, gun control advocates traveled to Washington to play for lawmakers a series of AI-generated audio messages featuring the voices of students killed in Parkland. This is AI-generated message from Joaquin Oliver, who was shot dead at the age of 17. Hello, I'm Joaquin Oliver. Six years ago, I was a senior at Parkland. Many students and teachers were murdered on Valentine's Day that year by a person using an AR-15. But you don't care. You never did. It's been six years and you've done nothing, not a thing to stop all the shootings that have continued to happen since. The thing is, I died that day in Parkland. My body was destroyed by a weapon of war. I'm back today because my parents used AI to recreate my voice to call you. Other victims like me will be calling too, again and again, to demand action. How many calls will it take for you to care? How many dead voices will you hear before you finally listen? Every day, your inaction creates more voices. If you fail to act now, we'll find someone who will. The AI-generated audio appears on a new website called The Shot Line, where the recordings can be sent to lawmakers. On Wednesday, Guac Oliver's parents, Manny and Patricia, were set to appear on CNN to talk about the new project when news broke about the shooting in Kansas City. We had an entirely different interview that we were going to do here uh, just to talk about some of the work that you guys are doing on Capitol Hill, trying to bring about awareness and change. And you see this happening as you were here visiting Washington. What is on your mind as you're, as you're watching this? I'm no, not surprised at all. Um, it's like literally we interrupt this interview because we have another mass shooting going on. And then you might be interrupting that one because it was going to be another one. So it never stops. In news from Gaza, Israeli forces have bombed and raided Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis, which the World Health Organization has described as the backbone of the health system in southern Gaza. The raid comes a day after Israel ordered thousands of displaced Palestinians and patients to evacuate. One doctor inside the hospital recorded an audio message from inside the hospital Wednesday. And now the drone speakers, uh, they announcing for all doctors inside the hospital to move outside the hospital. Israeli soldiers and tanks uh, surrounding the hospital from all sides. Shootings and bombings still continue. Israel is facing growing international pressure to call off plans to launch a ground invasion of Rafah, where over a million displaced Palestinians have sought refuge. The leaders of Canada, Australia and New Zealand have issued a joint statement calling for an immediate ceasefire, warning a military operation into Rafah would be, quote, catastrophic. Palestinian U.N. Ambassador Riyad Mansour spoke on Wednesday at the United Nations. Our effort is to do everything possible to stop Israel from committing this crime of depopulating the Gaza Strip and stopping the war immediately. The guarantee to do that is to have a resolution calling for a ceasefire, and we hope that the Security Council would elevate itself to that responsibility. 
In other news from Gaza, Palestinian journalist Mutaz al-Ghafari was killed on Wednesday in Gaza City in an Israeli airstrike that also killed his wife and his child. By one count, 125 journalists have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. Ceasefire talks in Egypt have broken down after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reportedly blocked Israeli negotiators from returning to Cairo for follow-up talks to secure the release of Israeli hostages held in Gaza. In response, relatives of hostages have held protests outside the home of Netanyahu and other members of Israel's war cabinet. In a statement, one group of relatives said, quote, this decision amounts in effect to sacrificing knowingly all of the hostages' lives, unquote. At least 11 people, including six children, have been killed in southern Lebanon in a wave of Israeli strikes as tension along the Israeli-Lebanon border escalates. Israel's attack came hours after a missile attack from Lebanon killed an Israeli soldier and wounded eight others. In news from Russia, at least five people have died in a suspected Ukraine air attack on shopping mall in the Russian city of Belgorod. Eighteen people were reportedly injured in the attack. This comes a day after Ukrainian forces blew up a Russian landing ship off the coast of occupied Crimea. Australia's parliament has overwhelmingly approved a motion calling for the release of imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who is an Australian citizen. The vote came ahead of a critical appeal hearing before the British High Court of Justice in London next week. Supporters of the resolution included Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who's urged the United States to drop its request to extradite Assange, who faces up to 175 years in a U.S. prison, for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Assange has been held in London's infamous Belmarsh Prison since 2019, awaiting possible extradition to the U.S. Prior to that, he spent seven years inside Ecuador's embassy in London. He had political exile there. Australian MP Andrew Wilkie introduced the resolution. This will be the time for all of us to take a stand, to stand up and to take a stand, and to stand with Julian Assange, stand for the principles of justice. Friends, stand for the principles of media freedom and the rights of journalists to do their job. This has gone on too long, that it must be brought to an end. And I'm confident if this parliament can support this motion this afternoon, Deputy Speaker, it will send a very powerful political signal to the British government and to the US government. To see the two Belmarsh tribunals that were held at the National Press Club last year, you can go to democracynow.org. In news from California, the Bay Area Air Quality Management Agency says it's won a decisive victory in a years-long legal battle against two oil refineries in the East Bay. In a pair of settlements, Chevron and the Martinez Refining Company have agreed to cut emissions and pay up to $138 million in penalties and fines for violating agency rules regulating airborne particulate matter. In labor news, thousands of Uber and Lyft drivers took part in a strike Wednesday demanding better pay and working conditions in what organizers say was the largest rideshare strike in U.S. history. Delivery workers from DoorDash also took part. The Valentine's Day strike came on the same day Uber's stock price jumped to a new high after the company announced it would buy back up to $7 billion worth of company shares in a move that will benefit shareholders. In other labor news, flight attendants picket 
picketed at 30 airports Tuesday in a national day of action demanding higher wages and a new contract. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman in New York. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Israeli troops stormed the main hospital in southern Gaza today after a days-long siege. Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus was the largest functional hospital in Gaza. Thousands of displaced Palestinians have been taking shelter there among hundreds of wounded. Gaza's health ministry spokesperson, Ashraf al-Qidra, said in a statement that Israeli forces demolished the southern wall of the complex and stormed the hospital, adding that they turned it into a military barracks. He said troops targeted ambulances, tents of the displaced, and bulldozed mass graves inside the hospital. Israeli troops have also ordered medical staff to transfer all patients to another wing of the complex, including patients in the intensive care unit and the nursery. Hours earlier, Israeli forces bombed a wing of the hospital, killing one patient and wounding several others. Democracy Now! was able to receive updates from inside Nasser Hospital several hours before Israeli troops stormed inside. Dr. Khaled Alser is one of the last remaining surgeons inside the hospital. He described the bombing of the hospital as well as an incident when a quadcopter drone opened fire on doctors inside. You can hear the bombs falling in the background as he speaks. Uh, there was uh, direct bombing to the hospital. Uh, they forced people inside the hospital, including patients, relatives. Oh, yeah, Allah. Patients, relatives, and uh, healthcare workers to evacuate immediately. And you can hear in the background the continuous bombing in the hospital. Uh, every minute and every hour, we have a new update. Uh, uh, just one hour ago, and uh, now the time here is uh, 3 a.m. after midnight. Uh, at 2 a.m., uh, um, Israeli army bombed the hospital directly with a rocket, which hit directly into the patient wards. Uh, six patients uh, were injured again, and one of the patients died on his bed. Uh, Israeli army uh, is trying to communicate with the people inside the hospital every time to warn them and threat them to evacuate immediately, even if there's uh, after midnight, they, the speakers on the drone shouting on people that they have to go out the hospital uh, immediately or they will bomb the hospital. And unfortunately, they have committed their warning and bombed the hospital directly just one hour ago. The situation here is getting worse every time and every minute. Uh, yesterday, I tried to evacuate my parents from the hospital because I have them here with me inside the hospital. Uh, but through a secure passage, as they claim that it's a secure passage for people and refugees to, to be evacuated through, in front of tanks and snipers and soldiers, uh, the a bulldozer and a tank tried to approach the people, so they were afraid and uh, came back to the hospital here, as a lot of the refugees. 
Uh, actually, the, the situation here in the hospital at this moment is in chaos. All of the patients, all the relatives, refugees, and also the medical staff are afraid because of what happened. Uh, we could not imagine that uh, at any time the Israel army will bomb the hospital directly uh, and they will kill patients and medical personnel directly by bombing the hospital building. Yesterday also uh, Israeli snipers and Israeli quadcopters, which is a drone, carry on it an AR. Uh, and with a sniper, they shot all over the building and uh, they uh, shot my colleague, Dr. Karam. He has a shrapnel inside his head. I can upload for you a CT for him. You can see, it's, alhamdulillah, it, it was superficial, nothing serious, but a lot of bullets inside the, their bedroom and their restroom because I'm not easily getting uh, internet access, you can uh, share my voices or edit them to spread the, uh, the news and spread the truth and what's happening to us right now. That was Dr. Khaled Al-Sir, one of the last remaining surgeons inside Nasser Hospital. Israeli troops stormed the hospital a few hours after he sent in those reports. The raid on Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus comes as fears are mounting that Israel will act on its plans to launch a ground invasion into Rafah, the southernmost part of Gaza that Israel had previously declared a safe zone. Over half of Gaza's population, some 1.4 million people, including over 600,000 children, are crammed into Rafah after being displaced from their homes and driven south during Israel's brutal assault. There are now massive tent encampments pushing up to the Egyptian border. International pressure is mounting for Israel to call off its ground invasion. The UN's top humanitarian official, Martin Griffiths, said that an assault on Rafah, quote, could lead to a slaughter. We go now to Rafah, where we're joined by journalist Akram al-Satari. Akram, welcome back to Democracy Now! We have just heard these chilling reports from inside Nasser Hospital right before uh, Israel occupied it and the bombing of it. You've sent out a picture of some of the ammunition used by the Israeli military. Explain what happened inside and also what's happening around you in Rafah. Well, the situation continues to be extremely dire in the vicinity and inside medic, uh, uh, Nasser Medical Complex. The Israeli occupation forces have been targeting the vicinity of the area, including some of the UNRWA shelters not far away from the hospitals. They are destroying and they were destroying the walls of the hospitals, the exterior of the hospitals. They targeted the words of the hospital, the inwards of the hospital. They targeted the surgery department in the hospital and injured at least one surgeon while he while he was inside the, surgeon, the surgery department, they asked people to leave the hospital. And when they're leaving the hospitals, they shot them dead. They asked one guy whose hands were tied and he was sent to the people inside the hospital, to the internally displaced people, asking them to leave the hospital. And then when he ended up speaking to the people and returning to the Israelis because he was fearful from death, he was killed and he was left on the ground. Around 80 bodies uh, laid right in front of the uh, outer gate of the Nasser hospital, up to some 200 meters away from the hospital. Fear, death and shock 
are enclaving and encircling the people in that area. The Israeli occupation forces continue their operation, continue targeting Nasser Hospital, continue ask people to leave, and when they are leaving, they snipe them. There are some disturbing images and footage of the people, of the bodies of the people being eaten and devoured by the dogs and by the stray cats. People who were just communicating with their relatives were describing the horrors and they were also documenting those horrors. Israel continues to target the hospitals. They target Nasser Hospital and they are still targeting Al Amal Hospital, not far away from Nasser Hospital, around 1, 1.5, 2, 2.5 kilometers in Al Amal neighborhood and they continue the very same policy. The policy of targeting the medical complexes, targeting the medical personnel, targeting the patients, targeting their escorts and spreading the fear and destruction in that area. Some of the people who were in Khan, inside Khan Yunus were rushing, were pulling the beds of their deers, some of them in the orthopedic department that was targeted, some of them in the general surgery department, and they were carrying or pulling the beds for around five or six or seven kilometers to reach Rafah. As you can see, now the Abu Yusuf al-Najjar hospital, where I am located now, has been receiving numbers of the people who were in, inside Nasser Hospital and Al-Amal Hospital. They received them. They are trying to expand the bed capacity of the hospital. They're trying to accommodate to the influx of people who are fleeing from Nasser Hospital, who are fleeing for their safety, who are fleeing for their life, and they end up staying in tents like those, where sanitation is at question, where the quality of the medical care provision is at question too, where the large number of people who are already staying inside the hospital prevent them from absorbing or accommodating any other additional number of people injured. The health system at large has been struggling. The infrastructure of the whole city of Rafah cannot absorb or accommodate the large number of Palestinians inside Rafah. Around 1.2 million Palestinians were staying in Rafah. Now tens of thousands of them are leaving Rafah and heading towards Khan Yunis and towards Gaza central area with doubts of the continuous and with fear of the looming ground invasion that is likely to be a replication of everything that was done in Gaza in the north and everything that was done in Khan Yunis. People were hopeful that the ICJ, International Court of Justice, would bring them justice or would at least make Israel reconsider its tactics when it comes to protected objects human objects and health facilities, also journalists. But it looks like Israel is continuing the very same approach, is continuing the very same way of targeting. We were hopeful as journalists that Israel wouldn't be targeting Nasser Hospital or Al-Amal Hospital. But unfortunately, the targeting is still continuous and the large number of people, tens of thousands of people who were stuck in Khan Yunis are now being targeted, either by the artillery fire or by the quadcopters or by the uh, or by the f-16 or by all the other means and they are being killed and they are being left even the ones who are injured are being left to die on the ground people were describing the atrocities they have been seeing people have been crying over their deers who were screaming for help but they couldn't help them people are now crying over their, their deers who are still waiting in Hanus and cannot be reached cannot be rescued, cannot be saved, and they are likely to lose their life, like many others who lost their life the very same way. As to Rafah, Rafah is the place now for around, as I said, 1.2 million Palestinians. The area is underserved, no good infrastructure, no organized camping, 
no organized tents, no organized service of provision, and the pressure resulting from this massive number of people is overburdening the municipalities, is overburdening the civil defense, is overburdening the Ministry of Health, and is overburdening the international organizations. The concern has been voiced, voiced by the UNRWA, by the World Food Program, by the UNICEF, by the United Nations Development Program, and they are all warning that any a ground offensive targeting Rafah is going to result in a catastrophe. A catastrophe that is bigger and much, much more bigger than the one that took place in the Gaza and the north and the one that is taking place right now in Khan Yunus. People in Gaza believe that no single international power is able now to bring an end to ongoing misery that has been caused by the ongoing occupation and the indiscriminate this indiscriminate targeting as described by some of the Palestinians. Some of them are already on the beds recovering. Some of them are struggling for their life. And some of them are deprived from the very basic humanitarian need to food and water. Water is missing in Gaza. Food is missing in Gaza. And people have been struggling not for their own food need, but rather for their children food need, for the elderly people food need. So the situation is dire and it continues to aggravate into something that is extremely life-threatening that needs an imminent, that needs an imminent intervention for the sake of stopping any atrocities that are likely to happen and stopping the atrocities that are taking place now. And I'm quoting many of the Gazans that I spoke to, many of the ones who are worried about their dears, many of the ones that are worried also about their own safety, many of the ones who are worried about the future and what it holds for them. They think it is about time that something happens. They think they have suffered enough. They think they have died enough. They think they have been hungry enough. They think they have been thirsty enough. They think they have been homeless enough. And this is the outcry, not only of the 1.2 million Gazans who are staying in Rafah, but also of million Gazans who are in Gaza and the north, who are in in Khan Yunis and who are in Rafah. People have been deprived from the access to very basic, essential food supplies and water supplies. They have been struggling, they have been facing famine, they have been seeing children who are dying from the hunger, and this is an outcry from them to the whole world that this needs to stop and the madness that is taking place in Gaza, and I'm again quoting the people who are talking to me, the madness needs to come to an end. As I'm talking to you, the, the unmanned drones are hovering all around the Gaza Strip. Day and night, continuous bombardment in different parts of Rafah, in different parts of Gaza Strip at large, and they continue to take the lives and hopes of the Palestinians. Palestinians who are living in Rafah and who are living in Gaza alike have been exhausting all the negative and positive coping mechanisms. The number of people who are injured is inconceivable. The number of people killed and the way they are being killed is also inconceivable and people continue to suffer and they expect that more suffering is coming if the international community fails once again to protect them. Akram al-Satri, if you could, you yourself right now are standing outside a hospital. We can hear uh, possibly a drone overhead. If you could describe the situation there, and you mentioned how uh, people, Palestinians there, are lacking even the most basic essentials, food, water. Tell us what humanitarian aid is getting in, if any. 
Well, I can't describe the situation. I will have to describe the way I'm feeling about things and how things are unfolding. Every single time I walk one step in Gaza, I always imagine myself being blown up by an unmanned drone or by F-16 missile or by a quadcopter or by whatever weapon that is used by Israel. Every time I'm walking in every single home I pass by, I feel that this home might be targeted and I might be ending up dying and killed under the rubble of that house. Every single place I stay. I moved from my home six times. So I am homeless and displaced six times now. And I'm waiting what would happen in Rafah. People in Rafah, as I told you, people are deprived from everything. Even the very basic essential things, the very essential things that are needed to lead a normal life or a semi-normal life or a life of internally displaced people. Even the internally displaced people in Gaza are unique and different than any other internally displaced people all over the world. Over, all over the world, people are receiving and accessing food and water supplies. According to the Sphere book, the Sphere book is a book that has been developed for the sake of just identifying the quantities that are needed and the calories that are needed for the people to stay alive at the time of famine or at the time of conflict, man-made or natural disaster. So people are not even accessing that very limited, the threshold of food that is needed for the people in Gaza is not met because the UN agencies that have been helping the Gazans are now tarnished, are now assaulted, are now attacked, and now the funding that is going to them is suspended. So people in Rafah and other areas have to do what they what 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 would they have to do to survive? Some of the people in the Gaza and the north had to do to use the food uh, to feed of the animals to ground it, the corn to ground it to make sure that they can bake some bread for their families. They don't have rice, they don't have water, they don't have canned food, they don't have anything. And they have been calling for the world to stop that. And they have been even, the, 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 the very emotional thing about that is that everything that is happening, including the most and profoundly shocking things, are happening live on air. People are just documenting their death. People are documenting their suffering. People are documenting their hunger. People are documenting their thirst. People are do documenting their injury. People even documenting the hospitals when they are being raided and stormed in by the Israeli occupation forces. And the whole world, they have a, a feeling that the whole world is watching and that is not doing anything. And that feeling of helplessness is another, another way to kill the Palestinians. So if they're killed once, they are killed twice, once by the ongoing bombardment that has been taking place, that has been documented, and the second time by not offering the fitting homage for those people, by serving justice and by stopping aggression, like was said by the many people that I talked to. The situation is extremely dire. You will never be able to imagine the things that are happening. When you're walking down the streets, when you see small children out crying for food, when you see them lining up hundreds of people for a very limited one pot of rice, or one pot of food and they are struggling to get some of that to bring back to their families. When you see small children staying unaccompanied because they lost the whole family. When you see one man who buried his whole family and who's walking down the street like losing his mind because he lost all that he dreamt would grow up with him which is his children. He lost his wife, he lost his father, he lost his mother, he lost his house, he lost any hope in, in life that he can clutch to. I saw many people talking to themselves down the street. I saw many people crying because they have no one to cry to. They have no shoulder to cry over. They have no one to look after them. They have no one to console them. They have no one even to offer them some kind word to look after them. And they are going to, and they're driven insane because of that. 
situation is unconceivable. It has affected all aspects of life of Gazans and it continues to affect them. And it has destroyed many lives and it continues to destroy life. And it is likely to destroy any hope that Gaza would survive. And I think this is the plan to break Gaza and to make Gaza uninhabitable and to destroy any possibility for Gazans to, to, to relive or to rebuild or to just re retake their life again. Uh, Gaza now has the highest percentage of people facing acute food insecurity anywhere in the world. Finally, Akram al-Sattari, as we watch you on the ground there in Rafa, and we thank you and your cameramen, we understand the very serious risks you face. I'm wondering if you question whether even to wear um, the vest you are wearing that says press. In light of the latest news just this week, bringing to possibly over 120 the number of Gaza-based journalists killed, um, the Israeli drone struck a pair of Al Jazeera journalists on Tuesday, seriously injuring correspondent Ismail Abu Amar. He's had his leg amputated and his cameraman Ahmad Matar. Uh, they're in European hospital. Then you have yesterday Palestinian journalist Mutaz Al-Ghafari killed in Gaza City in an Israeli airstrike that also killed his wife and his child. Did you know these reporters? How are you protecting yourself? Well, as a matter of fact, Ahmed Matar is a friend of mine. The last time I shook hands with him was uh, three days ago. He shook my hand, but unfortunately he has no hand now because his hand and his arm was amputated and he's struggling for his life right now. He's one of my neighbors. He's one of my friends. I know him very well. He's such a very nice and kind per person. I know also the Ismail uh, Abu Amar, the one who's struggling for his life now because of unexpected hemorrhage because of his injury. I know many other journalists who were targeted and killed because of the Israeli ongoing bombardment. I know they have lives. I know they have families. I know they have careers that should be protected according to Geneva Conventions. And I know they were targeted and killed despite the fact that they are protected. And I know also that it's not only the journalists who were killed. There are also some humanitarian aid people who were killed. There were also some UNRWA people who were working to serve the population that is displaced and they were killed also. I know many other people who were caring for other people and they ended up being killed. The killing is massive. The killing is thorough. And I think no one in Gaza is protected. No safe haven. And I think there is every single person in Gaza now uh, lacks that sense of safety and security. And uh, we all understand that we are going to be suspended, killed people. And we know it's just a matter of time when Israel will reach any one of us and would kill any one of us, either our dears or ourselves or our families or our friends or our acquaintances. This is the situation. This is, it is as dire as it sounds, but it, it's, it's different when it's felt. It's different when it's about the people you know. It's different when about the people you love. It's different when about the people who shake their hands, smile, sh shake your hands, smile at your face, say good morning or good afternoon or even good night. It's the personal stories of the people that makes us 
sometimes at the verge of collapse and breaking, but we understand that we have a mission to fulfill, which is to communicate the voice of the voiceless in Gaza, which is to show the real suffering the people has been enduring, have been enduring, without no guilt that have been committed by them. It's a story of a whole population. It's not just Ismail or Ahmed. It's not just Akram or any other one. It's a story of a whole nation that has been under considerable fear and horror because of indiscriminate fire and it's the duty of the world to continue to work towards seizing the fire and ending this atrocity now because I think the consciousness of the world has been stained by the ongoing atrocities and I think the ones who were killed the ones who are guiltless, the ones who are hoping that they would survive and build their life and continue growing and loving their friends and ended up killing. I think they deserve a fitting homage, which is serving justice and ending this ongoing aggression and enhancing and bringing about a ceasefire. Akram al-Sathari, I want to thank you so much for being with us. I can't believe what we are talking about now is you risking your life to bring us this report. Akram is a Gaza-based journalist joining us from Rafah in southern Gaza. Next up, we speak with the former head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth. Stay with us. Haitham Safia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Lermin Sheikh. South Africa has urged the International Court of Justice to take action if Israel goes ahead with its planned ground invasion of Rafah. In a statement, the South African government said it's concerned Israel's actions in Rafah will result in, quote, further large-scale killing, harm and destruction and breach the Genocide Convention. This is South Africa's international relations minister, Naledi Bandor, speaking Wednesday outside the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. South Africa is totally horrified at what is happening, continuing to happen to the people of Gaza and the West Bank and now Rafa. Uh, we believe this confirms the uh, allegation we've tabled uh, before the ICJ genocide is underway in the Palestinian territories, in the occupied uh, territories, and clearly the actions of the Israeli government prove that what we have said is actually accurate. 
For more, we're joined in Geneva, Switzerland, by Ken Roth, visiting professor at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, served for nearly three decades as the executive director of Human Rights Watch. Ken, welcome back to Democracy Now! We just heard this devastating report on the ground from a journalist in Rafa in Gaza. Um, and then we hear the South African foreign affairs minister talking about the renewed appeal they're making to the International Court of Justice. Can you explain what's happening and what this imminent ground invasion, if that's what's about to happen in Rafa, means, and if you think international law can deal with this? Well, Amy, I think as everybody knows, the Israeli military has gradually been moving from northern to southern Gaza. And the last place left, the supposed safe place, where at this point, as we've heard, 1.2 million Palestinians have congregated is Rafa. There's no place else to go within Gaza. And, you know, not surprisingly, there undoubtedly are some Hamas people there too. And so Netanyahu is saying, we want to invade Rafa. Now, there's this problem. There would be massive bloodshed if that happened. So even the Biden administration is saying, don't do it until you evacuate the civilian population. Now, Netanyahu has said, yes, I'll, I'll evacuate, but there have been no plans whatsoever and indeed, if you listen to the far-right ministers in his cabinet, people like Ben Giver and Smotrich, you know, people whose votes Netanyahu depends on to stay in power and to stay out of prison on corruption charges, they're saying the only evacuation that they want is into Egypt, out of Gaza, a forced deportation, probably another Nakba with little prospect that anybody who leaves Gaza would get to come back. And so that's the stake. Um, everybody's telling Netanyahu, move people someplace else within Gaza, but there's no place else that's safe. Netanyahu's determined to move forward because he needs to keep this war going. Once the war ends, his political reckoning for the intelligence failure of October 7th starts, and he's likely to be out of a job. Um, and, and we're sort of in this dilemma. Now, the International Court of Justice could intervene. Um, the order that it issued last month had basically three elements to it. Um, one was, you know, take far greater care not to kill civilians. Two was to allow in humanitarian aid. And three was for Israeli government officials to stop their incitement of genocide. And as far as we can tell, it was only the statements that have stopped. The aid has not come in in any greater amount. The killing doesn't seem to have stopped. And so, in any event, Israel has to report back to the International Court of Justice on February 23rd, I have no idea what they're going to say because they basically have just like ignored the order. Um, but now there is a possibility that even before the 23rd, the court will hear this emergency application from South Africa. And I think it's worth noting that in the original case, South Africa you know, sought a ceasefire, but I never thought that was in the cards because only the Israeli government, only states, frankly, are before the International Court of Justice. Hamas wasn't there, so the court wasn't going to order a ceasefire of just one side. But Rafa is different because uh, there's not a lot of fighting by Hamas from Rafa, but rather this is just a, a proposed invasion by Israeli forces. And it is conceivable that the International Court of Justice would order a halt to that. That, of course, begs the question, who enforces that? Um, the UN Security Council has that power, but that requires contending with the U.S. veto, contending with Biden. The person who, frankly, does have the most power to stop all of this bloodshed is Joe Biden. But so far, while he's been outspoken, he's not been willing to put any teeth in his words. 
Most significantly, he's not been willing to stop or even to condition the $3.8 billion in annual U.S. military aid or the massive arms sales to Israel. Those are the kinds of steps that, if taken, Netanyahu would be forced to listen to. But so far, Biden's words are just empty, and Netanyahu ignores them. Ken, Ken Roth, if you could say a little bit more about uh, this enforcement or lack of enforcement mechanism of the International Court of Justice. You wrote a piece uh, last month in The Guardian suggesting that the political pressure, despite the lack of uh, enforcement mechanism, that the political pressure on Israel would be such that they would have to, in some sense, comply. So a, a couple of questions. First, what would happen, for instance, February 23rd, as you said, Israel is supposed to report back is it possible that they do not report back? And then the International Criminal Court, which takes, of course, individuals uh, to court. Who are the people? You've just mentioned senior Israeli officials, Ben Gavir and Smotrich. Who are the people that the ICC could prosecute? And your uh, response to what Karim Khan uh, so far has said. Well, in terms of, you know, what is the pressure on Israel, I think it can be broken down into three elements. You know, one is just the, you know, the utter embarrassment of having been found to be plausibly committing genocide. That's what the court found. Now, most governments, that would be sufficient to, you know, force them to step back. But this is Netanyahu. And, and you know, as I mentioned, um, Netanyahu's political future and, frankly, his personal liberty are at stake. And Netanyahu has always prioritized himself. And so ending the war means, you know, this political reckoning, this investigation into what happened, what intelligence failure allowed October 7th to take place. Uh, he doesn't want that to go forward. So he keeps fighting and fighting, hoping somehow to survive, somehow to stay out of prison. So the, the shaming isn't working. The, the, the economic pressure that Joe Biden could exert on Israel would be very powerful, you know, to stop the billions of U.S. military aid, to stop the arms sales. That would be incredibly powerful as a statement. Joe Biden is nowhere near that. He's, you know, speaking nice words. He's saying, take greater care for civilians, let in more humanitarian aid, don't invade Rafa without an evacuation plan. But there's nothing backing that up. And, and Netanyahu basically is just, you know, thumbing his nose at Joe Biden because there's no clout behind these nice words. Now, the final you know, source of pressure, which you mentioned, is the International Criminal Court. And, and for viewers, just to make clear, there are two tribunals in The Hague, just to confuse people. You know, one is the International Court of Justice, which is a civil tribunal that hears complaints between states. That's where South Africa brought its genocide case. That's the court that made the ruling that Israel is plausibly committing genocide and issued the, the three basic orders that I outlined. The separate tribunal is the International Criminal Court. This is, as the name implies, is a criminal court. It prosecutes individuals, not governments. It tends to focus on the most senior responsible officials. And that means it's going to look at the chain of command. And it's quite clear that in this case, the, the orders with respect to you know, dropping these 2,000-pound bombs that are causing such devastation in Gaza, the orders to allow in only drips and drabs of humanitarian or medical aid. You know, these are orders that are coming from the top. So I think the people who are most vulnerable would be Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, and Yoav Gallant, the defense minister. Now, 
is Kareem Khan, the chief prosecutor, going to act? We don't know. You know, he has had an open investigation into what's called the Palestine case since he took office in January 2021. But he has gone very, very slowly. And so far, all we've gotten from him is a couple of nice, eloquent statements before the media. One on the Egyptian side of the Rafah border, another from Ramallah, the, the capital of the Palestinian Authority um, in the West Bank. And so, you know, he's a barrister. He's very eloquent. These are nice statements, but nothing else. So we're all waiting for the war crimes charges. Clearly, Hamas is going to be charged. You know, what it did on October 7th is horrendous. You know, killing civilians, abducting civilians, blatant war crimes. So, you know, Hamas leadership is very vulnerable. I don't see Kareem Khan only charging Hamas, given 28,000 Palestinian deaths in Gaza, given the pervasive starvation in Gaza. So he's going to have to look at both sides, and he's not moving quickly. If he were to move quickly, um, that would wake people up. You know, if Netanyahu suddenly faced war crimes charges, um, that would be a very different factor in the calculation that leads him to keep killing and besieging Palestinian civilians in Gaza. In terms of crimes against humanity, the cutting of aid to UNRWA, the U.S., the largest contributor to the U.N. Palestine Relief Agency. Can you talk about the significance of this and the Senate bill that was passed by Democrats and Republicans, not only giving $14 billion, much of it in military aid to Israel, but cutting aid to UNRWA that runs the hospitals, the schools, to millions of uh, Palestinians in Gaza and in other places as well, Ken, and Israel particularly targeting hospitals. Well, Amy, as you note, the, the treatment of UNRWA has been absolutely despicable. Um, the Israeli government claims, they haven't put forth evidence, but they claim that 12 UNRWA employees out of 12,000 in Gaza, that 12 took part in Hamas's October 7th attack. We don't know whether that was true or not, but UNRWA did everything that Israel conceivably could have imagined. It fired the staff members who were still on, on, on the staff. A couple of them had apparently died already. Um, it immediately launched an investigation. It did everything you would want. But Israel's attack on UNRWA is really not about those 12 staff members. Israel has wanted to get rid of UNRWA forever. Now, this was, I think, um, accentuated by the fact that the International Court of Justice actually relied repeatedly on descriptions by UNRWA of the awful reality in Gaza, the utter lack of humanitarian aid, the starvation, um, the, the attacks on, on hospitals and the like. Um, but Israel hates UNRWA because it believes that UNRWA is responsible for the Palestinian refugee problem. This is utterly naive. UNRWA is a humanitarian agency. It does, you know, as you noted, run schools and clinics, not only in Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem, but also in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, you know, wherever Palestinian refugees are. And the Israeli government view is if UNRWA were to disappear tomorrow, Palestinian refugees would somehow forget that they're Palestinian refugees. And this desire to return to their ancestral homes in Israel would just evaporate. 
Now, you know, this is a way of just whitewashing history. You know, suddenly we don't have to talk about 1948. We don't have to talk about um, the, the, the fact that there were, you know, 600,000 Palestinians who were forcibly displaced by Israeli forces and have never been permitted back to Israel. That just disappears. You know, that was the original sin, but we're going to forget about that. We're just going to get rid of UNRWA. Now, this is naive, but that is the Israeli government line. And what's particularly despicable is that Joe Biden fell for this and suspended aid to UNRWA, followed then by 18, 19 other governments around the world. And, you know, it would be one thing to believe this kind of propaganda, you know, in ordinary times. But this is in the middle of a war. This is in the middle of a situation where there is, by all accounts, widespread starvation in Gaza. There is impending famine for a significant part of the population. And UNRWA is the main vehicle to deliver what drips and drabs of aid get into Gaza. You know, now some of the governments like Germany said, oh, well, other groups can deliver the aid. But the other groups got together and issued a collective statement and said, there is no way we can even come close to replicating UNRWA staff. UNRWA alone has this capacity to deliver aid in the midst of this war. So if you devastate UNRWA, which is what this funding suspension does, UNRWA has said, you know, it will have to shut down by mid-March if the funds are not renewed. To get rid of UNRWA is to condemn the Palestinian population in Gaza to death by starvation. And that, we should be clear, that's what's going on right now because Israel has this ideological vendetta against UNRWA in its hope that it can somehow disappear the Palestinian refugee problem. Ken Roth, we're going to have to leave it there. Visiting professor at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, served for nearly three decades as the executive director of Human Rights Watch, speaking to us from Geneva, Switzerland. Next up, we go to Bill Hortung. As President Biden urges the House to vote on the Senate's foreign aid bill that includes $14 billion to Israel. Stay with us. Back in 20 seconds. Horsemen of Apocalypse, Steeds of Light by the Stratospheres. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Here in the United States, President Biden is urging the House to vote to approve a $95 billion foreign aid bill passed by the Senate Tuesday that includes $14 billion for Israel's war on Gaza, along with $60 billion for Ukraine and $8 billion for Indo-Pacific allies like Taiwan. It also strips U.S. funding for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. Independent Senator... Bernie Sanders opposed the measure, joined by two Democratic senators who broke ranks with their party, Jeff Merkley and Peter Welch. This is Welch. I voted against the supplemental for one key reason. I cannot, in good conscience, support sending billions of additional taxpayer dollars for Prime Minister Netanyahu's military campaign in Gaza. It's a campaign that has killed and wounded a shocking number of civilians. It's created a massive humanitarian crisis with no end in sight. It's inflamed tensions in the Middle East, eroding support among Arab states that had been aligned with Israel. And of course, it has severely compromised any remaining hope 
almost all remaining hope for the two-state solution that we all know is ultimately essential for peace in the Middle East. That's Vermont Senator Peter Welch. The foreign aid package now faces an uncertain future in the Republican-controlled House, where Speaker Mike Johnson's refusing to schedule a vote without first adding new anti-immigrant and border enforcement measures and may propose an alternative package today. For more, we are here in New York with William Hartung, national security foreign policy expert at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His new piece for Forbes is headlined, Senate aid package underscores Washington's skew priorities. Uh, Welcome back to Democracy Now! Bill. Talk about what this bill represents, which is largely supported by Democrats. Well, the first thing that stuck out to me is $95 billion, most of it to ship weapons overseas into war zones. You know, this Senate would never do an emergency bill to stop record homelessness, stop hunger, uh, you know, deal with the climate crisis. Uh, The United States has the worst uh, record of life expectancy of any industrialized country, and yet we're putting the bulk of our resources uh, into implements of war. And, of course, the, um, you know, to to give Israel more money to continue the slaughter in Gaza that we've seen laid out in this program is obscene. And I, I think the members who voted for it should be ashamed of themselves. But I think the real point is to stop the killing. There's got to be a ceasefire. And President Biden, uh, through cutting off, conditioning U.S. military aid, has the strongest hand to try to do that. So uh, there's got to be more pressure. I know there's been a lot at the grassroots level, some within the government, but it's got to continue uh, because I I think the goal here has to be to, to stop the slaughter. And the Senate vote came just hours after the EU's foreign policy chief urged the United States and other countries to stop providing arms to Israel. So if you could if you could respond to that, how common is it, first of all, uh, for the EU foreign policy chief to make uh, such a, a pronouncement and what whether this kind of pressure will affect uh, the Biden administration's policy? Well, it, it's very unusual to see that kind of statement, uh, you know, from an ally. Uh, but but this is a, a very unprecedented and devastating situation. So, um, you know, I don't know what what exactly is going to move the president. It's clear it's going to hurt him electorally. Uh, it's clear that it's running the risk of a wider Middle East war. Um, you know, th- there's really no, from a realistic point of view, there's no reason to be doing this. It's basically kind of a ideological kind of, uh, you know, issue that seems to be embedded in the the president's consciousness that it has to be uh, dislodged. Bill Hartung, you've talked about how the Pentagon and military contractors are exploiting uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine to get special favors to push arms out the door without proper vetting, building more factories without oversight. Can you explain? Uh, Yes. Well, the industry has had this longstanding list of things they wanted, as you pointed out, push arms quickly, less human rights vetting, uh, more subsidies to build factories. uh, And of course, this reduced scrutiny will also make it easier for them to engage in price gouging. So they've sort of wrapped themselves in the flag with respect to Ukraine. Uh, You know, the president has called them the arsenal of democracy, I think would be a surprise to the people of Yemen and other places where the U.S. is arming uh, dictatorships. Uh, so so they're trying to run with this and really change the whole argument about whether we should be spending more on the military at a time when the budget is soaring towards a trillion dollars a year. U.S. accounts for 40 percent of world military spending, more than the next 15 countries combined. 
Um, so there's got to be strong pushback against this because essentially it's it's kind of a new Cold War atmosphere and it's attempt to kind of whitewash the negative consequences of what these companies do. And of course, contractors get about half of that close to a trillion dollars a year that we spend on the military. Uh, finally, um, if President Biden says he's warning Israel, for example, against a ground invasion of Rafa, but then increasing funding to Israel and military funding, um, what message is that sending? Well, I think anything this administration says about human rights, the rule of law, the uh, rules-based international order rings hollow in the face of what's happening with respect to supporting Israel in this war. And I think it'll uh, reverberate well beyond this conflict. I think, you know, the U.S. will not be taken as seriously when they raise these kinds of issues in the future. So not only is it uh, horrific for the people of Gaza, but I think it undermines the role of the United States in the world in any cases where they actually would want to play a constructive role. So it's it's hard to manage a, a more damaging uh, foreign policy decision. William Hartung, we want to thank you so much for being with us, national security and foreign policy expert at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We'll link to your piece in Forbes, Senate aid package underscores Washington's skewed priorities. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh here in New York. This news is funded by viewers and listeners like you. Please support our work at democracynow.org slash support.